Yahweh, I call upon your name as it is written, Whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. Well, you know how I feel about this material, Father. Yahweh, it is both written and spoken that we shall all be children of yours and taught of you. I would rather, Yahweh, that you speak directly to everybody's heart. And all I ask is that whatever role, little role I can play here in uh, pointing people to you, to your word, to your eternal principles, that uh, you bless these humble efforts of mine. Um, I'm very much aware of how insignificant I am compared to what you can do. Be used of us, Yahweh, all of us. Speak to us. In Yahshua's name I pray. Hallelujah. Friends, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May all the grace of Yahshua be yours. The title of my remarks today is Yahshua's Truth Movement Part 2. Now, when I gave a similar sermon during the Feast of Tabernacles, I didn't call it Part 1 because I didn't know there was going to be a Part 2. <clears throat> so if you want to go find that, um, during the Feast, I'll tell you, it's, it's funny how we normally give names to our video archives, and the name will be some reflection of the sermon. But I'll tell you, we have such a big time at the feast that the, the sermon winds up being just a fraction of the meeting. So here's how you find part one. You look for September 24th, Feast of Tabernacles 2021. And my previous remarks will start at approximately one minute in th- well, one hour and three minutes into the video. Well, that's the archive they have up now. I got some good feedback last time, so I thought I'd give you some of the material that wound up on the cutting room floor. This is the stuff that I didn't get around to to squeezing and crowbarring in. Yeah, putting this stuff together is hard. Let's see if any of this is worth uh, including. Here's an outline for today's presentation. We're going to review part one. In fact, when I went back, a good fraction of this time will be uh, devoted to reviewing part one or parts of part one. We'll we'll transition to a compelling quiz that turns up in a book I found early in my journey of self-examination. We're going to be exploring our motives through that quiz. And uh, we'll study the Hebrew word for truth. Golly, if I'm talking about truth, don't you think I ought to spend a little time talking about the Hebrew word for truth? Well, we will. And then we'll close by looking at some selected truth statements of Yahshua. The overall theme will be self-examination, honesty in the inward parts. In part one, I talked about the cultural truth movement. That's a phenomenon in our nation, perhaps around the world, and it started with a focus on the 9-11 attacks. There are anomalies in the sequence of events. There were things that made no sense. And so people started to emerge and uh, questioning the official story, and they called it the 9-11 Truth Movement. There was the 9-11 Truth Movement. There was the uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, people like that. Well, over time, that Truth Movement attracted a lot of people who were into conspiracy theories, and the whole thing became just a giant ball of people involved in what's called the truth movement. Maybe you never heard of it. But they extended their investigative reach into all areas um, of puzzling phenomena in our society. 
uh, such as the JFK conspiracy, which I've been studying since I was a kid. The vast majority of Americans say that we lost our president to a conspiracy. Even the Congress concluded that. A special special committee on assassinations concluded it was a conspiracy. So I guess it's safe to talk about that now. But in all these cases, even the ones that I took the time to investigate, our ability to get all the facts is consistently hindered. Now, my claim is that one of the things that hinders our ability to get all the facts is if there are areas of our heart that are not surrendered to the truth. Because if you don't have honesty in the inward parts, you will be unable to discern lies when they're presented to you. And so the truth movement wound up to embrace alternative theories for bombings, terrorist attacks, assassinations, election outcomes, UFO phenomena, the weather, economic upheaval, failures within the news media, and every health crisis. Always seems to have some kind of conspiracy theory tagging along. Whatever's going on here, it doesn't look good. I'm going to get this off of here. Either you have an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of conspiracy work in the background, or you have an awful lot of people manufacturing conspiracy theories, or you have both. In any one of these cases, if you zoom in on any one of these uh, topics, you find, yeah, there's a lot of questions, a lot of strange things going on. A lot of these conspiracies are not really known and understood until maybe decades later. My fa- my, one of my favorite safe ones to talk about was the Dreyfus Affair in France. Over a uh, hundred years ago, some poor Jewish guy in France, a, a military officer, was falsely accused of spying for Germany. Imagine that, a Jewish guy spying for Germany. Well, anyway, um, the press was against him, the government was against him. The guy was later vindicated. But you needed a whole lot of people to work together to pull that off. You can look up the Dreyfus Affair on yourself. D-R-E-Y-F-U-S, Dreyfus Affair. Now, one of the topics I covered the last time was this phenomena of us versus the cops. On this video, a visual here, you see um, Buster Keaton in a 1922 film called Cops! Exclamation point. It's a very funny movie. It's a silent movie. Pretty good, clean copies are out there. I recommend it to you, but somehow this poor comedian gets the entire police department after him. And it's a very funny film if you take the time. But um, you have people who will make it sound like it's the cops against us. And it seemed like a nice little controversial topic to talk about from um, a neutral position. And I point to the Roman soldiers who were the policemen of John the Baptist's time. The Roman soldiers, they didn't have police like we have today. In Luke 3.14, the soldiers likewise demanded of him, John, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. The controversy right now is that if the police are active on a case, we fear that they're going to conspire to manufacture evidence, Rough people up when no one's looking. Things like that. I want to underscore, be content with your wages. 
Because this is not a reference to a labor wage dispute. It has nothing to do with your pay scale. It's a reference to civil asset seizure or forfeiture. Today, in some jurisdictions, the police can take your money and possessions and keep it until you prove you got it legally. For example, if you're caught driving around with a lot of cash in the back seat, they'll assume you got it from a drug deal, and now you've got to prove to them that you're innocent. And this is being litigated in jurisdictions around the country right now. Of course, as Americans, this is preposterous. It's, it's ridiculous. You're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. In a famous case most recently, the FBI got involved in this behavior. The federal judge gave them clear limits on their jurisdiction. They wanted to look at the contents of selected safety deposit boxes at a safety deposit box service in uh, Hollywood, it was either Hollywood or Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. And they took the judge's instruction, threw them aside, and they busted open every box. They just totally ignored the boundaries put on them, and they kept everything in there. And people are suing right now for jewelry, family heirlooms, life savings. These poor people got to go in and prove that they're innocent of any crime. Well, anyway, that's civil asset seizure or civil asset forfeiture. It's just a disappointment to hear the FBI did this. But that's what John was talking about when he said, be content with your wages, because the soldiers back then were prone to roughing people up, manufacturing false accusations, and seizing their property. And you find that at Calvary, they seized Yahshua's garment. It was a finely made garment, no seam. It was an excellent garment, and instead of presenting that to the family, they gambled for it, as prophesied in Psalm 22. That was Yahshua's Passover suit. When I realized that several months ago, I found myself even more offended. That is what Yahshua wore when he instituted the beginning of the new covenant. Yeah, I'd like to have that garment too now that I think about it. But I wouldn't have coveted it. I wouldn't have like wanted it for myself and no other. But the Roman soldiers were accustomed to doing this. Just taking things. You have no rights. Is it really us versus them? There is another side to the story. You know, after that, um, a poor guy suffered at the hands of the police up there in Minnesota. I observed that there was three things everybody in the country wanted. We were actually quite unified last year. We all wanted well-behaved cops. We wanted justice for that man who suffered. And we wanted peace in the cities. And I guess we only got two out of three. But I don't know anybody who was in favor of that guy being uh, mistreated as he was. And so we had this upswing of interest in the cops behaving themselves. Is it really us versus them? Well, there's the other side of the story. The thief at Calvary has his story too. There's two men executed with Yahshua at Calvary. And while they're gambling for his garment over there, one of those two men were harassing Yahshua and then had a change of heart. And his remarks reveal the missing ingredient in our great national debate and also our biblical outlook on life itself. 
Luke 23, verse 39 to 43, it says, And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be the Messiah, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear Elohim, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto Yahshua, Master, remember me when you come into thy kingdom. And Yahshua said unto him, Verily I say unto thee today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Hey, I just noticed that word verily. We're going to talk about that more later. When Yahshua says verily, it's an, actually an emphatic statement. I'm telling you the truth, man. I'm telling you. This is the real deal. This is, this is the straight scoop. And there you have the missing ingredient, honesty in the inward parts. And that's what I emphasized in part one. Honesty in the inward parts got that thief at Calvary eternal life as a result. Evildoers rarely confess their faults, and that stubbornness is what often gets them in power. It's really funny to hear people complain about a political opponent who, who gains power in the government. They say, oh, he's proud, he's rude, he's high-headed. They're all like that. They're all proud and stubborn. It's extremely rare to see a politician apologize for doing something wrong. It's, it's extremely rare. If you think of some, let me know. I could think of a couple, but I, uh, they're rare, and I'd rather not take the time. But everyone from the petty shoplifter to the corrupt politician, all of them struggle with this necessity to have honesty in the inward parts. It would be wonderful to have a politician run for office and say, I'm going to make mistakes. I've made them before. But I have some skills that would make me do a good job. I, I humbly ask that you put up with me for a few years and give me a chance at this. How many people would vote for that? I think I'd, I'd consider it. But they don't get very far if they're honest. The thief at Calvary, finally being honest in the inward parts, lays out a framework for our individual redemption. This is for many of you in the outreach right now. Acknowledging yourself as a sinner. Uh, there's a mistake there. It should be acknowledging yourself as a wretched sinner. Every one of us, you hold us up to the Ten Commandments, we all look real shabby. Acknowledging you deserve what you get. Recognizing Yahshua's innocence. Accepting Yahshua as a king with a kingdom. Now that's not the totality of the good news, but it's plenty to build on. And it's good enough for a guy who's really experiencing a conversion right there at Calvary. I have viewed numerous videos of shoplifters being apprehended, and I have seen only one apologize on the spot. Where is the sincere repentance of these suspects when the police apprehend them? The cops see these stubborn people all day long. I didn't do nothing. What about you? What about you? Are you, are you capable of that self-examination too? Now, when I talked in part one, that was just, you know, a couple of weeks or so. And I'm sorry, it was just a week or so after atonement, a day of self-examination. I suspect I'm only going to do an average job here today. I'm going to give it my best shot. But I do know this. If I can talk up the topic of self-examination, it, in, it increases the odds of you participating in that activity 
yourself when this day is over. Here are five selected scriptures that talk about honesty in the inward parts. Psalm 51, verse 1 to 2. Yahweh, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Psalm 51, 5 to 6. Now that was the big one when David repented. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. It's not very fun to discover a dark cave deep in your heart. So, oh my goodness, why do I do that? Psalm 24, verse 3 to 4. Who shall attend unto the hill of Yahweh? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of Elohim. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see Elohim. There's so much in the scriptures about this. Maybe it's good that we carve out some time to talk about it. Do you honestly think corrupt cops will reform the BLM and Antifa mobs? Do you honestly think corrupt cops are going to change them? You think BLM and Tifa mobs will ever reform the corrupt cops? No. Do you think rioting looters are going to change anybody's mind? I remember during the Martin Luther King riots, I came out of grammar school at midday in 63rd Street in Chicago, west of Ashland. It was a canyon of boarded-up storefronts. I don't recall any of those shopkeepers saying, yeah, maybe I ought to love my neighbor more. I don't recall anybody talking like that. They were angry. They did nothing to deserve that. Corrupt politicians have no answers, and they never will. It's just, how is a a corrupt politician going to lead you to moral reform? A frenzied mob on Capitol Hill, that's not a spirit-filled answer. I don't know anybody after the January 6th event who said, yeah, I think I'm going to change my ways. I saw no kind of a movement like that. By the way, there's people all over the country right now praying for revival. And there's one thing that characterizes real revival is when you have giant swaths of people confessing their sins. You see it in the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in history. You see it in American history. After 9-11, you remember how people were going to church for a few weeks after 9-11? But there was no grand admission of national guilt, of our sins. I know at least twice there was calls for prayer during the revolution. And the wording was, ask forgiveness for our manifest sins. But in a real revival, you have lots of people confessing their sins. You don't have violence, mayhem, congressional inquiries. <laughs> don't have that kind of stuff. Lying journalists will not reform anyone, and they won't convince anyone. Foul-mouthed activists and pundits will not succeed, especially in the light of James chapter 3. Again, I want you guys to be careful what you play on your radio if you're going to be working in the sanctuary around here. We have significant, profound evidence that Yahweh is here. And you don't want to chase him away by playing something on a radio 
or a mobile device that's got profanity, no matter how much you like the guy or the, the lady speaking or singing, this is a sanctuary, this is a holy place. We should be very careful what we do here. Yahshua promises we'll be empowered to reform others only after cleaning up our own life. Now, <clears throat> when you're trying to pull that splinter out of the guy's eye, he may be dealing with some hardness of our heart himself. But you, as a surgeon, will not be equipped until you have the log out of your own eye. I'm going to take you on a journey of self-examination. This occurred around the middle 1980s. I was baptized in 1980. But a lot of people were studying the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I will not be talking doctrine here. I will not be slipping in doctrine here. You've got to trust me. But this was a, a sandbag in my face. And I've decided to take a risk here and take a peek at this book, which was one of my first stops on the journey uh, for self-examination for myself. I wanted to see what this book had to say because some of the saints had read it. It's called The Rebuilder's Guide. The Rebuilder's Guide, published by the Institute in Basic Life Principles in Hinsdale, Illinois. <clears throat> Believe me, I'm not sick. I just have some lingering congestion. <clears throat> but I'm fine, friends. This book is written for those whose marriages are threatened by divorce. The most important thing to remember about divorce is that those who are going through it are in a whole lot of pain. It's unbearable pain. <clears throat> now, I've only broke up with a couple gals. I've never been married. I only broke up with a couple gals. Let me tell you, breaking up is hard to do. And if I just multiply that by 10, maybe 100, I understand that's what divorce is like. Both parties, typically both parties, their heads are like exploding. When someone is experiencing a divorce, they want answers and they want that pain to go away. I can't blame them. I, I just had a major tooth extraction. I might say a little more about it later, but I just wanted that pain to go away. <laughs> Most Christian books that deal with divorce and remarriage open with promises of making everything clear and relieving the pain. The, uh, I'd like you to look at that image for a moment. I've got some, I, had, uh, I had some terrible news come along. Uh, there's a guy I've known for years. I thought he was a friend of mine. And uh, he announced on the internet that he had put his wife away. And his, not too long ago. His, his reasons were not scriptural. Well, then his wife put this on Facebook. Now, she called it grief, and for those of the audio outreach, this is a sculpture of a man bent over. The outline of his body is made of wire, like it looks like fencing material, and the figure is filled with rocks, big rocks. But when that sister posted this on her webpage, she called it grief. Now, the real name of the sculpture is Rising Karen, C-A-I-R-N, Rising Rising Karen. It's a sculpture in front of the Nevada Art Museum in Reno. There are times when I've been visited with unbearable grief. And those who've been through a divorce, they tell me this is what it's like. Oh, 
Most Christian books open with the promises of making everything clear and relieving the pain. So they typically give you a historical overview of the topic, a fresh look at familiar scriptures, sympathy for the suffering, in-depth analysis of the Hebrew and Greek words, scholarly opinion, and typically they wind up with a go-ahead for divorce and maybe a remarriage. Not saying all Christian books, but most that I've seen uh, have these elements. So along comes this book and frames it all up differently. There's a reason I'm putting you through this. I hope you can trust me. Maybe you'll get sandbagged like I was sandbagged, like a giant sack of potatoes thrown in my face. Now you look at Table of Contents for Chapter 1. Table of Contents for Chapter 1. And I'm going to kind of caricaturize this as though maybe I'm the guy who's in a difficult marriage. I'm thinking of divorce. My wife's thinking of divorce. My heart is breaking. My head wants to explode. And look at chapter one. Rebuilding a heart that seeks Yah. Yeah, I put the holy name back in there. Evaluating my true motives. Spending time daily in Yah's word. I don't want this. I want answers now. Learning who Yah really is. I want this pain to go away. Entering into the resurrection power of Messiah. Being consistent when we do not feel like it. No, I want to know what my rights are. I want to know if there's some Hebrew and Greek approach to this thing that will make me feel better about what I'm going through and what I want to do. Honoring Yah's Day. <clears throat> this book is written by a Christian who believes Sunday is a Sabbath. Well, at least he's keeping something Sabbath right now. I'm not going to put you through all the details of this. Um, there'll be fewer and fewer details as these slides unfold. And chapter two is rebuilding a commitment to Yah's design for marriage. How marriage illustrates Yah's relationship with Israel. How marriage illustrates redemption. How marriage illustrates Messiah's relationship with the assembly. How marriage illustrates a believer's relationship to law. Applying scriptural principles to 22 marriage questions. Finally, at the end of chapter 2, special research on the exception clause. Of course, you make a mistake if you zoom right to that. But it's called a rebuilder's guide, and every chapter has something about rebuilding. Rebuilding a clear conscience and a forgiving spirit. You know, if my heart is in the grip of bitterness, I feel betrayed. I may not be interested in a clear conscience and a forgiving spirit. I may be looking for not an exception clause, an escape clause. Rebuilding your marriage. I knew a gal back east once. Uh, her husband wanted to pray with her about their marriage, and she said, no, I don't want to pray, because I know my prayer will be answered, and I don't want that prayer answered. On the other hand, in the course of my research, I learned about a minister who sensed his marriage was in trouble. And he got up early every morning and prayed one hour a day for his marriage. Can you imagine the nuclear power unleashed by one hour of prayer a day for one thing? Well, he got victory all right, and you can be sure he did a lot of self-examination on his knees. There's other titles that are very thought-provoking. Rebuilding a learning relationship with your children. I don't see that much in Christian books about marriages and stress. 
rebuilding past failures into a new life message, rebuilding the damaged marriages of others. I can tell you, honestly, I, I have never seen any book talk about rebuilding other people's marriages too. So I'm reading this in the 1980s. I'm thinking, here I am trying to approach this thing like all the other books minister to. What's the Hebrew say? What's the Greek say? What do the scholars say? What do the experts say? What are my rights? What buttons can I push? What knobs can I turn? What wires can I pull? Can I call my lawyer? And this book lays out a program of drawing close to Yahweh. And so here I am, a single man. This is that quiz I told you about in the um, summary at the beginning of this. There's 18 questions here. And there's a reason I'm putting you through this now. Number one, do you ever think about finding a new marriage partner? Well, you get rid of the word new, and that sounds like me. I mean, everybody thinks about getting a marriage partner. But if you're already married, you shouldn't be thinking about finding a new one. Do you evaluate people you know or meet on the basis of how they would be as a marriage partner? Well, that might be normal, but if you're already married, you're not supposed to do that. Do you spend time reading the Bible this morning? Imagine some poor guy whose, whose brain has been nailed to the wall by the realization that his marriage is about to implode. And he opens a book and it says, did you spend time reading the Bible this morning? In other words, the day you first opened the book. Did you put yourself to sleep last night by quoting scripture in your mind to Yah? You know, I used to do that. I fell out of the habit of that. I got into the habit of playing my mobile device and with something educational. Well, anyway, uh, I stopped that recently, and I'm back to going to sleep quiet. Quoting scripture in my mind to Yahweh as I go to sleep. By the way, if you have a hard time falling asleep, memorize scripture and then recite them as you lay down. Knocks you out every time. Number five, do you ever fret against Yah because of what he allows to happen in your life? I could put myself in the shoes of a married man because I've seen some tormented men and women going through this. Why did Yahweh make this happen to me? Well, here's how it is, gang. Yahweh can use these suffering situations to drive you to a place of extreme self-examination. He did it to the thief at Calvary. He did it to Job. He'll do it to you and me. And it's so common. Yahweh speaks to us at the time of our greatest need. It has been said that suffering is the great giver of wisdom. And here all this time, Yahweh is refining you in the crucible. By the way, there's an interesting saying. When a... When a uh, a metalsmith is purifying molten metal in a crucible. Do you know how he can tell when it's pure? It's when he can look down and see himself. Do you relate your conflicts and counsel to Psalms and Proverbs? If you get on a schedule of reading Psalms regularly, you'll find that there's verses that speak to issues in your life right now. You can hit the break and pray about them. Have you spent at least one day in prayer and fasting during the past month? In my observation, people who are going through a breakup, they lose their appetite. They lose weight. Well, 
for goodness sake, if you're going to go without eating, why don't you make it part of a formal fast? Have you ever been tempted and defeated even while you were praying for victory? Praying for strength in the face of temptation is not the way to do it. You're supposed to pray that Yahweh reveal to you the strength you already have in Yahshua. Have you read at least one biography of a great believer in the last six months? Well, there's only a tiny number of Christians I'm interested in studying. What I'd rather do is sit around the campfire or the lunch table with you guys and find out how Yahweh's been strong for you. When I get to the end of this, I'll have a nice surprise for you. Have you read at least one by... Oh, I read that one. Number 10, can you quote the following chapters word perfect? Well, there, I had heard that there are Christians who memorized Romans 6 and Romans 8, and they became more obedient to Yah's word. I never did James 1, but I did James 3. I can still do James 3. I'd probably need a little help with Romans 6 and Romans 8. But these are things I was challenged to do after reading this book. Are you active in and under the authority of a Bible-believing local assembly? By the way, if you're thinking of moving here to YRM, you know, we'd love to have the congregation grow, but you've got to help with chores. You've got to help us with chores. Sometimes the workload here is serious. And uh, it's such a relief to the ministry to have people step up and volunteer do you give the first part of each paycheck to Yah? Early in my walk, this, these were all very convicting things. Do you ever have doubts as to whether or not you are a believer? I had no doubts about that, but I can see how somebody whose heart, mind, and soul is being ripped up by a failed marriage, they'd have doubts. Have you ever totally dedicated your life to Yah's will? That's a big one. No, really, have you dedicated yourself to his will? Is it yes, but? Is your dedication yes, but? Are you expecting counsel and support from others that only Yah can give you? In Isaiah 54, I think, verse 13, it says that they shall all be taught of Yah. Yahshua quotes that. He wants to dialogue with each of us individually, directly. He really does. Do you have a respected friend who will keep you accountable to achieve these goals? That's why I like it when the men get together downstairs and pray. We get real with each other. Maybe we'll get real with each other in other ways, too. You have scripture plaques or cards on the walls of your home. I used to have four. Two are damaged. One I gave away. I found one not too long ago, and I put it on the wall. But you can see <coughs> what was supposed to be a manual on how to rebuild a marriage it turned out to be a general purpose program for relating to Yah. To have a continual awareness that Yahweh is watching and weighing all your thoughts, words, and actions. You have a general purpose program on how to relate to your Father in Heaven. Here's the surprise. I discovered in my walk that there are believers in the household of faith who didn't need a book to put the spurs in them. There are saints among us who read the Psalms regularly, who pray regularly, who study regularly. I'd rather get it from each of you than get it from a book. But you can see how this was an important stop in my journey to self-examination. Well, I sure have had my share of ups and downs, so on that basis I can relate somewhat to people who've been through a divorce 
a troubled marriage, hardship. But the scriptures speak about a divine kind of love that transcends all troubles, all fears. Like the song we sang, I'm no longer a child of, what is it? I'm no longer subject to fear, I'm a child of Yah. And when we're close enough to him, we can confidently sing that song. <coughs> I'm going to pivot now and leverage this business of honesty with the self. I'm going to leverage on a particular topic. The truth about pharmacia. A lot of concern out there about the medical industry. A lot of concern out there about um, pharmaceuticals, medicines. We just had a phone go off. I thought that only happened to concert pianists. Okay. All right. Back at the ranch, we had a lot of concerns about pharmacia, pharmaceuticals, right? In the New Testament, the word for sorcery is pharmacia in the Greek. And this is where they had used uh, medicines to, um, I don't know if I should call them medicines. They used uh, natural substances to induce hallucinations, and they thought that was a religious experience. Well, it turns out the word pharmacy also is related to the Greek word pharmakia. And sure enough, some of these medicines out there are bad for us, aren't they? A lot of side effects. And um, medicines are part of Yahweh's kingdom. A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. I can attest to that. But the sorcery and the pharmakia. A lot of people are raising a flag saying, hey, some of these medicines aren't so good for us. We take a close look at them, the side effects. They have not been adequately researched and proven. Yeah, that is a concern. It's a grave concern. I'm going to take you, though, to a slightly different place. How about the pharmakia in our food? How about the chemicals in our food? You'll see concerned brethren in the, in the lunchroom at times saying, you know, I don't think I can eat that anymore. There's something in there that addicts me. It kind of draws me. It has like a, a gravitational pull all its own. And there's people right now, as I'm talking, there's people with laboratories and computer simulations trying to find ways to make that food so you want more. You go back for more. I want more. It doesn't matter how full I am. I want more. One of the most pathetic things, I wonder if uh, my engineering brother Randy over there, maybe he can relate to this. One of the most pathetic things is to see an engineer at a computer station typing away, and there's a big bag of something crunchy nearby. Have you seen that, Randy? Have you ever seen that? Oh, it happens in your space, too, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, some of that stuff, the crunch, the texture, the taste, the salt... In some of those pharmacias in there, you've got to be careful. Let's have a word of truth about sugar bombs. Sugar. Some people think it's a drug, the way it's refined, processed. And what's funny is I'm talking about an act of worship here. You know, sometimes I go to the dessert bar, a fellowship meal, and I see an act of worship there. Pretty, tasty things, attractive things. And I can't eat them anymore. Not like I used to. I might take a corner off of one of those brownies out there, you know, but Proverbs twenty five sixteen says, Thou hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Proverbs twenty five twenty seven, it is not good to eat much honey. The ancients knew about type two diabetes. They knew about it. 
They had a name for it. There was one tribe of people had a name for it. I'm not going to repeat up here. But I'm going to ask that we all review and recalibrate our lifestyles. Let's have fun. I mean, there is a a term, onyeg Shabbat, the delight of the Sabbath. But um, I sometimes fear for my fellow saints. Because some of us are really suffering from terrible diseases. And sugar is just not good for you. It's a delight. It's a, it's a man-made pleasure. If you don't think sugar is a drug, try living without it. Gloria Swanson led a sugar-free life. She was very healthy. She died at 84. Toward the end of her life, her husband was that guy in the lower right-hand corner, William Duffy. That's a photograph, a pair of photographs from the back of his book on the topic. Now, William Duffy wrote a biography of Billie Holiday called Lady Sings the Blues. Maybe you've heard of the movie, Lady Sings the Blues. But then he wrote a book called Sugar Blues, and he talks about the history of sugar, the wars that have been fought over it, how this staple of our diet is, is um, actually come to ruin us. The picture on the left is before he stopped eating sugar. The photo on the right is after he gave it up completely. On the left, you have a sugar daddy, a sugar baby. On the right, you have a lean, strong face of an athlete. Sugar blues. Um, the book has a cult following because it talks about the problems that, with sugar. There is a saying, all things in moderation. Well, I've had a gift from heaven here with this bad tooth. I had a bad molar going back to my childhood. And for the last several years, it's been a, a barometer. If I had too many carbohydrates, it would flare up. It was finally extracted last Monday, and that's why I'm not at my best today. But uh, that tooth, they gave it to me. They handed it to me. The, the roots were twice as long as the crown. It was really hard to extract. It took five syringes full of painkiller for the dentist to calm me down. It's so hard. Now suddenly I look at the dessert bar on fellowship mealtime and I say, no, I can't go there anymore. I'll count that as a gift from heaven. I'm begging you to rethink all this talk about pharmacia, the vaccines and the drugs. and all. Let's think about the pharmacia and our foods. Are you eating foods that are addicting you? Are you eating foods that are making you ill? Are you developing tastes and addictions that are going to serve against you later on? Yahweh wants a strong people. We got warnings about sugar. Surely they, pardon, we got warnings about honey. Surely they would apply to sugar. Try living without other things. How about internet, soap operas, other cravings? Hmm? Yahweh wants a strong people. I had a one-day cold at the end of the feast. By the second day, the symptoms were pretty much gone. After I dropped off Brother David in Kansas City, I drove back through a complicated series of events. I wound up having something very sweet. Within four hours, the cold came back, mucus alert, and then I missed Sabbath. Excessive carbohydrates weaken the immune system. Let's be honest with ourselves. I'm crazy about rice. I love rice. Oh, jasmine rice. How about basmati rice? Oh. Excessive carbohydrates weaken the immune system. I'm begging you all to be careful. Be honest with yourself in the inward parts. 
Okay, the Hebrew word for truth. In many passages, Yahshua says verily, verily, or just verily to preface a truth statement. In Matthew 5.18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will in no wise pass from the law to all be fulfilled. When he says verily, what is the word in the Greek? I looked it up. The Greek word for verily is amen. It's a Hebrew word. I just learned this. I always knew he said Hebrew, amen, when he spoke Hebrew, but I didn't know the Greek had a amen too. Same letters, Hebrews 5.43 and 5.39 in Strong's. It means sure, faithfulness, truly, amen, so be it, truth. <coughs> now in the Hebrew Matthew, he'll say either amen or he'll say bet emet. Bet emet. Emet is also the word for truth. It's uh, related from Strong's 5.39. But that's what he says there, bet emet. Or amen. Maybe you've seen uh, in the Hebrew roots directories, you'll see a study, uh, study groups called Bet Emet, House of Truth. He must have said it emphatically. Because when you, um, we're going to look at some of these truth statements to wrap up. But when he says in John, verily, verily, it's amen, amen. But in other Greek texts like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it'll, it'll be just amen. So I think the translator into the Greek for John, he was trying to convey that he was saying it emphatically. Amen, amen. Trying to convey that Yahshua said, I'm telling you the truth. He's emphasizing it. He inflected it in such a way to say, I'm drawing attention to this. Therefore, when you do your alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may have honor of men. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. How about a gang when you're fasting, praying, doing alms? You're not supposed to advertise that. I really don't want to hear about it. When Yahshua heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Okay, that means he goes all the way back to Israel's time, Jacob's time. I don't know about Abraham, but he's saying this pagan soldier in Matthew 8.10, because he respected authority, had more faith than he had ever seen. A Roman soldier understood authority, that was the greatest example of faith from the time of Israel up until Yahshua's time. That's why I'm so keen on respecting the authorities in your life. Because there's a day when maybe I'll rebuke a demon or call down a blessing for healing. And I want to have my heart right. Verily I say unto you, Matthew 11, 11, among them that are born of women there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. We have got to, that makes John number two, right? Yahshua's number one. John's the number two prophet of all time. Converted countless people. We should include John's theology and doctrine in our, in our beliefs. Verily I say unto you, there are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A lot of people are troubled by this because everybody died before the second coming. If you go to the very next chapter, Matthew 17, you'll find that um, three of them, Jacob, John, and uh, one other, might have been Peter, went up on the mountain with Yahshua, and they saw him transfigured. And if you read Peter's epistles, you'll find he explains this. That transfiguration was a foretaste of the second coming. So if you're worried about this, Yahshua saying, Verily I say unto you, three of them got to see it. 
And verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 18.3. Matthew 18 is dedicated to forgiveness and restoring people. I have another one from Matthew 18. And if it so be that he findeth, talking about the lost sheep, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Those of you who are struggling with sin, Yahweh wants you to come clean. Cry out to him for help. He's tickled pink to hear from you. Even 70 times 7 a day. He wants repentance. He wants you to relate to him. You will overcome. You will have victory. You will become his child. Matthew 19, 23, Then said Yahshua unto his disciples, Verily I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, people often point to the riches of Abraham. Well, he was rich, wasn't he? Maybe I can be rich too. The kind of riches Yahshua is condemning are certainly not the wealth of Abraham because he was very benevolent toward his employees. Good grief, he sent us a servant to go find a bride for his son. He's very protective. He launched what I consider the First World War when he went and rescued Lot. Read the story. He rescued Lot. It was, it was a big war. Today's employers are not like that. <coughs> but anyway, if you are blessed with riches, you better be careful. It's, it's hard to manage your faith life with all that. Matthew 2131b, Yahshua said unto them, I say unto you that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of Elohim before you. I don't care how bad your situation is, no matter how deep your sin Yahshua was very delighted to welcome you in. But you have to have the honesty within yourself, like that thief at Calvary, to say, hey, I deserve all the troubles I got. It's time to come clean. Matthew twenty four thirty four. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. This is the Olivet prophecy. Come talk to me sometime. I got a giant jumbo spreadsheet, and I lined up all the verses in the Olivet prophecy of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it suddenly makes sense. The missing verse is that comment you see in uh, Luke where he said the times of the Gentiles have to be fulfilled. And right now we're either at the end of the times of the Gentiles or it's already been fulfilled. When Yahshua says this generation shall not pass away, he's talking about the very last one. And it's going to go quick. It's going to go very quick. Am I glad about that? Turning to John, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. I want to just focus on the fact that hearing those words, you also have to believe on the one who sent him. You've got to believe he came from Yahweh. John six twenty six. Yahshua answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. What were your motives for seeking Yahshua? Did you want a free meal? Yahshua resents people who come to him with false motives. There was some gale decades ago down in Texas with, with one of the fellowships down there. And she wanted to get baptized because she liked a guy down the block. And she thought, if I get baptized, Yahweh will give that guy to me. What are your motives? You got, you got goofy motives like that? 
Joshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but from my father. He giveth you the true bread from heaven. He said this shortly after rebuking them for chasing him for a free meal. What are your motives in seeking him? I want to give some relief to people who um, out there might sin on occasion. Yahshua answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Well, I looked up the tools on uh, Bible Hub. When that committeth sin means an ongoing action. And uh, what it, it's better stated as whosoever is practicing sin is a servant of sin. What you do is you go to him and say, look, I got some besetting sins in my life, Father, and I'd ask you to deliver me from this. Are you willing to pray one hour in the morning like that minister who saved his marriage? You should treat sin as your mortal enemy. Verily, I verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up by some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. What are your motives? I'm very concerned if I hear people claim they're brothers or sisters and they don't understand the superiority of Yahshua's ministry. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, John fourteen twelve. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father in heaven. There's no qualifications in there about being an apostle. So if I'm not doing the works Yahshua did, or greater works than him, it means I don't believe on him enough. There's a common belief amongst us, I, 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 um, I expect it is true. As we approach the end time, there will be an awakening of Yahweh's spirit amongst us. But it looks like that to get in on that, we're going to have to make Yahshua a big part of our message. Let's see, is this previous one worth going? I'm going to close with this one. Yahshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, we're uh, just about done. I wanted to close on this. Um, that was an answer to a question. It was a question that had a yes or no answer. I don't like questions with yes or no answers because sometimes yes or no answers leave out a little bit of truth. They leave out some details. But they asked him, are you older than Abraham? Was this answer a yes or a no? Are you older than Abraham? Verily I say unto you, verily, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they wanted to kill him. And that's how you know his answer was a yes. He was older than Abraham. This established Yahshua's doctrine as ancient and supreme. Some of us have a problem with Yahshua's superiority. Some people have a problem with his um, primacy. He has the final word on doctrine. He has the final word on what's to say. You know, one thing I noticed with divorce and remarriage, a very delicate topic, very, very difficult one. A common practice is for people to ransack the Old Testament, the Psalms and uh, pardon, the pro, um, prophets and the law, and then they say, well, Yahshua would never overthrow my interpretation of the law and the prophets. No, no, Yahshua is the one who sorts everything out. He and his hand-picked disciples, his hand-picked apostles, his ambassadors, 12 of them were hand-picked by him. And they had the final word. 
not your interpretation of the law, not some rabbi or some guy in there who has an interest nibbling around the edges. <coughs> in summary, Yahweh requires honesty in the inward parts. That's Yahshua's truth movement. Once honesty in the inward parts is functional, the scriptures become clearer, and your testimony gains a divine edge. From there, we can all be a force for restoration ministry. Thank you for your kind attention. I don't know why you put up with me. Um, maybe in another three months, they'll let me out of my cage for another message. But uh, I'm so glad you tagged along with me on this. Shall I bless you?